right, well, let's uh, get back to our study of soteriology. Last week, we started our atonement questions, and hopefully we can finish those this week. Um, so, reviewing, though, first, how, uh, how did we define atonement? What is the atonement? Covering. Covering. That's kind of the very base base meaning of the word atonement in Hebrew and in Greek is a covering, a covering. So like we mentioned that that's the same word that God used when he told Noah to cover the ark with pitch. So it's a covering. It's a, a payment, a covering for sin specifically. And we looked at how Hebrews and Leviticus both tell us um, that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And Leviticus tells us that it's because the life is in the blood. So without blood shed, innocent blood, there can be no forgiveness. And so we thought through how those Old Testament sacrifices, the lambs and the bulls and the goats, they would sacrifice those as a substitute. It would die in the sinner's place, and that blood would make an atonement, a covering for the sins of the one bringing the offering. And that was God's solution to man's sin problem. Because God's goal was to dwell in the midst of his people. But God is holy, and he doesn't tolerate sin in his presence. And the people's sin would encroach on the presence, the glory of God. So there had to be a covering, a shedding of blood for that sin. And then we fast forward and we understand how then Christ is the perfect sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice. We no longer have to keep offering these sacrifices to make atonement. Instead, Jesus' blood pays for our every sin, and not for our every sin only, but also for the sins of the whole world, First John 2 says. So, <clears throat> then we're asking two questions about atonement. Um, the first one's the important one, and that's what we started last week. We're asking the question of the nature of the atonement. And so we talked through some false theories this week. We'll review those, look at the true nature of the substitutionary atonement, as it's called, and then we'll finish out. We just want to discuss and think about for a few minutes. We don't have to land on a specific view necessarily, but discuss the extent of the atonement, and we'll define that as we get there. But thinking about these false theories, we uh, spent a lot of time on them discussing last week, um, but... We talked about the ransom to Satan theory that says that Christ's death was just a payment to Satan to purchase us out of bondage to Satan. And we detailed how that sounds nice until you read the scripture and you realize Satan wasn't the one to whom the payment was made. Christ's death was a payment to satisfy the wrath of God toward our sin. So we talked about that one. Then we talked about the recapitulation theory. This one's hard to define and um, <laughs> hard to wrap our minds around, but Irenaeus, he was kind of the pioneer of this view. Basically, he said that Jesus recapitulated every stage of Adam's life. In other words, he had to start innocent and then go through sin and then succeed in overcoming all of those challenges in order for him to be the last Adam. And we saw this is it has a little truth that Jesus is indeed the last Adam, um, and he succeeded in every way in which Adam failed, but he didn't go through sin in order to do it. 
Otherwise, he couldn't have been the spotless Lamb of God, as um, John the Baptist called him. John 1.29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then we talked about this commercial or satisfaction theory that Anselm brought up in the thousands A.D. Um, essentially, it says that God, through our sin, God was robbed of his honor that was rightfully his. Which, that's kind of true. We didn't give glory to God as it was due. But somehow mankind robbed God of honor. And so in order for us to be accepted before God, there had to be a way for us to give back to him the honor that we stole. And so then Jesus, he comes and he lives a perfect life and dies. And he earns so much honor before God, he has surplus that he could give to us. So that then we're right before God. And there's some truth there. Jesus does have, if you want to call it, surplus righteousness that he imputes to us. He's perfect. He's the, pin the pinnacle of righteousness. And so through salvation, our sins are forgiven, and Christ imputes or credits his righteousness to us. But it had nothing to do with restoring honor to God. Instead, his blood was shed in order to pay for our sins. Then we talked about the Christus Victor theory. Um, Christ is the victor. And there's, again, some truth to this one. It says, essentially, that the work of Christ was a cosmic triumph over all enemies, meaning sin, death, and the devil. And so Christ, he, he, he was victorious over those, and therefore then, that's, that's the true nature of the atonement, was that Christ was victorious, and therefore now he can save us because he's the victor. And there's some truth there. Christ is the victor. But... What it's doing, the reason that um, Gustav, however you say his last name, Alain, Alain I don't know, sorry. Um, the reason he pioneered this view was he thinks that the true nature of the atonement, as the scriptures teach, is violent. Well, how could God the Father give his own son to die for our sins and be the sacrifice and all this bloodshed? He thinks that's too violent. And so he was saying, well, it's not that. Instead, Christ is just the victor. But the scripture is very clear that without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness for our sins. So if Christ didn't shed his blood, we would be yet in our sin and hopeless. So before we go on, any thoughts on the false theories of atonement to wrap up that discussion? Questions or discussion on it? <clears throat> okay. Okay. Well, then let's talk about what we're excited to talk about, the true nature of the atonement. What is the atonement? And we're going to look at a bunch of scripture um, to defend this true nature of the atonement. But there's two key words that theologians like to use when they're trying to define the true nature of the atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. So penal, that is the word referring to the penalty for sin. Sin has a penalty. And what is that penalty? Death. Death. We teach our kids this in all of the children's classes. And anytime you talk with kids, it's, well, the penalty for sin is death. Can we think of a text that says that? Yeah, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It's like you can't get any clearer than that. So there's a penalty for sins. 
Um, let's look at Galatians 3. So Christ's death was a payment for sins, and that's what Galatians 3 is telling us. You think of God just, he must be a mastermind. He is, but he must be a mastermind when it comes to literature. Because you think of how many centuries the Bible was written over, and all throughout it, God has woven with so many different human authors, he's woven threads of key ideas that just keep coming up. So Galatians 3, Paul is capitalizing on the idea of a curse. Remember back in Genesis 3, we have this curse on the ground, we have this curse on the serpent, and because of this curse and the sin and the corruption, life isn't what it's supposed to be. But not only is there that curse, but chapter 3, verse 13, there's another curse. Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law meaning the condemnation that it brings upon us when we know the law and we don't fulfill it. Christ has redeemed us, purchased us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Well, how was Christ made a curse for us? Paul says, for it's written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful picture how Paul, he picks up on this metaphor of the curse. We were under this curse. We deserve to die. And yet Jesus became accursed on our behalf. But how could Jesus, the perfect, spotless Son of God, become a curse to take our curse? Well... There was that loophole in the law that cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. And Jesus did just that. But not only was Christ's death a payment for our sins, but it was also Jesus suffering beneath God's just wrath against our sin. So let's go over to 1 John chapter 2. This is just trying to think about that penalty aspect of the atonement. So 1 John 1, um, John is talking about the fellowship that we have with God through Christ and it brings fullness of joy. And then he talks about walking in the light as God is in the light. But if we say that we walk in the light, but we live in darkness, we sin, then we're liars and we're not practicing the truth. And there's this, he goes back and forth. And we have the famous verse, verse 9 of chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. 1 John 2, verse 1, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So then, here's the question. What is a propitiation? I didn't use that word in any sentences last week. Not one. What's a propitiation? 
It's a satisfaction of wrath. Some would call it, they'd say, a wrath-removing sacrifice. In other words, the picture is we have incurred the wrath of God through our sin. Romans 1.18 says that. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We've incurred or earned God's wrath because we've rebelled against him. How can we get rid of the wrath of God that would eventuate in eternal death in the lake of fire? We've got nothing. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah said. So Jesus comes, and he is this spotless lamb of God, and he bears the wrath of God. He takes our sin upon himself, and God's wrath is outpoured upon him. Now God's wrath is satisfied, so Jesus offers forgiveness. Thoughts? So that's the penalty side, or as, as they say, make it an adjective, penal, substitutionary atonement. The idea of a substitute. Not only did Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, make atonement in that it, he paid the penalty that we deserved, the death, and he satisfied God's wrath toward us, but he did it as a substitute because we were the ones who deserved death and God's wrath. So 1 Peter 3.18. This is a really cool verse. It's in the context um, Peter's talking about suffering for doing right instead of suffering for doing wrong. Um, and then he, he's making the, the application by illustrating Christ's suffering. Who wants to read for us 1 Peter 3, verse 18? Go for it. Uh, 318. Okay, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Mm. How does that verse help us see the substitutionary aspect of the atonement? Yeah, that phrase, the just for the unjust. He suffered for sins, he being the just one, and he suffered in place of the unjust so that he could bring us to God. Okay, so then let's talk about some key texts that help us understand the nature of the atonement. Um, we already mentioned Hebrews 9.22 that says that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And Leviticus 17.11 gives us the, the idea that the life is in the blood, and that's why bloodshed was required for sins to be forgiven. But then, um, let's think, okay, Genesis 2.17, that's where God says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Um, chapter 3, verse 3, that's, uh, oh, what's that one? 
Oh, that's when Eve is recounting what God said. But then, so as you go through there, then you get to chapter 5, verse 5, and it says, and all the days of Adam's life were 930 years, and he died. And it's like, okay. So, then this, this section, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 5, along with some passages in Romans, help us understand that death was our lot. Let's just go over, let's do Romans now. Romans 5 and 6. We already quoted Romans 6.23. Who wants to read Romans 5.12? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. So sin entered the world by one man, Adam, and because of that, death passed on all men, because we've all sinned. So we understand that death reigns. We've all got an appointment with death one day. Um, it's inescapable unless the Lord comes back first. But then let's read Romans 6.10, just across uh, the page. So he died this death unto sin once for all. That was our lot. We owed the death penalty, but Christ took it. Okay. Think of the picture of the Passover lamb. And Paul makes the application. He says that Christ is our Passover. Right? In the Passover, what did they have to do in order for the death angel to pass over their house and not kill their firstborn? right so we have a very real picture in this passover festival of what christ would do a couple millennia later there's a substitute the firstborn son in order for him to be able to live there had to be a substitute the lamb would take his place and die and shed his blood instead of the firstborn son I mean, just imagine doing that with our kids nowadays. How horrified they'd be sacrificing this lamb. And we'd probably get in trouble with the county or somebody if we painted our doorposts with the blood. They wouldn't think anything about it. I don't know. There's some weird. I, I just passed a house on the way here that still has Halloween and stuff up. And it's like a dead body wrapped in a, with like skeletons. I'm like, okay. Man. So really, it probably wouldn't be yeah. that weird. <laughs> Maybe not. But the picture of the substitute and the bloodshed. We see the same picture, Leviticus 1-7, to with the sacrifices of atonement, the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. It has the idea of a substitute. Remember how they, like, let's, uh, let's go read Leviticus 1-4 so that we get the picture. Oh, Brent and Aaron aren't here. They've been reading Leviticus, and Brent always has a fun Leviticus comment for us. But Leviticus 1, 
It's just interesting because Leviticus, admittedly, yeah, it's a pretty tough book to read. But there's just really cool details in there. And everything that God ordained, he did it for a reason. And it's just fun to get glimpses of that. So Leviticus 1, um, let's just pick it up in verse 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say to them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering. And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord. And the priests, Aaron's sons, will bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that's by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. He'll flay, cut up the burnt offering, cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire upon the altar, lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priest, Aaron's son, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order upon the wood that's on the fire, which is upon the altar. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water. And the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. So verse 4 was what we were thinking specifically about. What were they supposed to do? They bring this, this male without blemish from the flock, and they bring it to the, taber- the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. But then what were they supposed to do to this animal before it's killed? Yeah, It says, lay a hand on its head, and then it will be accepted for him. To make atonement for him. Well, why did he have to lay his hand on the sacrifice? Yeah, to identify with it. Transfer. It's appointing it as a substitute. That's the picture it gives. It's saying, this animal is now my substitute. It's going to die in my place. And now it's going to be burnt up and go up before God. It's kind of a beautiful ceremony when you understand the imagery behind it. But that's the same picture that Christ picks up on um, as our substitute. So Isaiah 53 is a good passage that talks about it, how Jesus bore our sins. There were none of our sins that he didn't bear. But then Mark 10.45, let's go over there, pick up Jesus' own words. Miss Diana. So Mark 10:45. Who wants to read that one for us? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As a ransom for many. This is a cool word, this for. It means in the place of. We could do a word study and we won't do it this morning, but every time it's used, that's what it means, is in the place of. It's a substitute. So Jesus says, I didn't come to be served. He deserved it, but that's not why he came. He says, I'm going to serve. And what is the penultimate way in which Jesus would serve? 
It's to give his life as a ransom, a payment in the place of many. She's like, wow. So we get this picture, the substitutionary atonement. It's all about Christ was paying the penalty, the price that we owed, and he did it as our substitute. He died in our place. He shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. Does it make sense then why we talked about some of the false theories of the atonement? It just really serves to highlight then the true nature of it. Let's look at one more text. Um, Let's do 2 Corinthians 5.21. And then we'll move on to the extent of the atonement. We've saved just the right amount of time for it. Five minutes. We could talk about it that long. But the extent question is less important than the nature question. Okay. Who's there and wants to read it? 2 Corinthians 5.21. Okay, so who's all the he's and him's? For he has made him to be sin for us. Who's the first he? God. God the Father. He, God the Father, has made him, Jesus, Jesus, God the Son, to be sin for us. Jesus is the one who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. Exactly. So there's this exchange where Jesus was made sin for us and absorbed the wrath of God so that before God, we would be made righteous. We're the righteousness of God through Christ. So that's why this, the fancy words, penal substitutionary atonement, is to capture the idea that Jesus is our substitute. He took our place and he paid the price that we owed through his blood. Any thoughts or comments on the nature of the atonement before we move on? That one is more important than the extent question because if you get the nature of the atonement wrong, there's no salvation. Because if Jesus didn't shed his blood for our sins, there's no forgiveness. But then the extent question, let's define the... oh. Okay, one question, just to provoke thinking. Is God guilty, uh, God the Father guilty of cosmic child abuse? It sounds silly, but that's actually what Gustav Allen and many people charge Christianity with. Is God the Father guilty of cosmic child abuse? I feel like it saddened him. I mean, not, I don't know. It hurt him to do that, but he knew Mm -hmm. that he had to. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, so. I agree. It saddened God the Father's heart, but if a human father did that, they'd be sad, but it still wouldn't be good. Yeah. Exactly. Amongst all those sinners, um, but you know, Jesus came down to be amongst all the sinners, but he's all tears for it. That's right. 
was voluntary. He could have hidden himself away. Mm -hmm. He could have decided. Yeah, yeah, that's what he says in um, in John 11, I think is sorry, John 10. He says he talks about he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. But he says, "I lay down my own life. No man takes it from me." He's giving it willingly. So it's not cosmic child abuse. But then the extent of the atonement, the question is, it's debated between Arminianism and Calvinism, um, is the classic debate. So is the extent of the atonement limited or unlimited? In other words, the question is, for whose sins did Jesus die? For only the sins of the elect, the ones who would be saved, or for the sins of everyone? Right. I agree. Everyone. But it's an argument people have. So there's really three views. First of all, universalism. That one is not orthodox. In other words, that's not what the Bible teaches. You can't go there and be believing the truth of the word. They say Jesus died for the sins of all. Therefore, all are going to be saved whether or not they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not true. If they reject the sufficient sacrifice of Christ, they're condemned in their sins. But then unlimited atonement says Jesus died for the sins of everyone, but only the elect or only believers, those who receive the sufficient sacrifice, they will be saved. Limited atonement, they would say Jesus died only for the sins of the elect. So we already mentioned John 10, but let's just go there. Because there are the limited atonement advocates. There are some um, thought-provoking arguments that they put forth. That's, that's admitted. So John 10, verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knows me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So, someone from a limited atonement persuasion would say, well, see, he says he's only laying down his life for the sheep. He didn't lay his life down for the ones who were not sheep. Sheep being a metaphor for his own believers. Okay, but we already read 1 John 2, too. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins also of the whole world. Or classic, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's right. So the offer is a genuine offer. Jesus paid for all the sins, and he makes the offer freely, but only those who accept the offer of salvation have the sacrifice and the atonement applied to them. Forgiveness and Christ's imputed righteousness. But people discuss it. You can think about it. It is good to think about and they have some rather thought-provoking arguments you could think about, but... If we don't think about it, we won't know how to respond to people mm-hmm. who have different points of view or no points right. of view. That's right. Yeah. And there are good believers on both sides of this debate. We even will have to respond to people who say, though, who are believing Christians supposedly going to a Baptist church, let's say, not here, Like, lots of people have the right doctrine. Said, well, we know that when they die, they get a second chance. Mm-hmm. And you go, 
And our our loving hearts want to believe something like that. But Hebrews 9.27, for instance, is kind of my go-to there. It says, and it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Mm -hmm. There are no second chances. Mm -hmm. Luke 16 also um, goes with that. Lazarus and the rich man, they both die, and the rich man's in Hades, and the Lazarus is in heaven. And, yeah. And the rich man doesn't get to get out just because now he recognizes that what Lazarus said was true. That's right. So. So what 